0: hi this is andrew and this is on the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and Hello, everybody. It is May the 27th, 2021. What a difference a year makes in the United States. This time last year, COVID was raging. Donald Trump was president. Uh, Today, um, certainly COVID isn't raging. Donald Trump isn't president. Everything changes in the United States, for better or worse. It's not true, though, uh, perhaps in the rest of the world. The headlines today about Syria are... Uh, ch- chillingly familiar. Uh, the election uh, a couple of days ago, I'm not quite sure whether we can really call it an election. Um, we perhaps should, should use that word carefully. Uh, this headline on NPR said that the uh, election shows the extent of Assad's power, Assad being the Uh, former and current ruler of Syria. I'm not entirely sure even what we mean by Syria these days. Nothing much changes. Biden wants to change one of Trump's policies on US oil, but the Americans are in retreat in Syria at best. Um, And uh, the only thing that can be said for sure about Syria is everyone continues to suffer. The UN news today shows that In spite of the, again, quote, unquote, relative calm, a kind of mafia peace of kind, uh, the growing humanitarian suffering in Syria continues to uh, fester a tragic irony. Syria is in many ways the tragic irony of the 21st century in broad terms. The terrible suffering experienced by its people, I think, is unimaginable for those of us in the United States. We have today an author, somebody who has spent a lot of time thinking about the Syrian crisis, the humanitarian crisis. His name is uh, Daniel Levin. He has a new book out, Proof of Life, 20 Days on the Hunt for a Missing Person in the Middle East. Uh, It's a book about uh, searching for perhaps somebody who did or doesn't exist, and it allows uh, Daniel Levin to write about the Syrian tragedy, the Syrian crisis. Uh, Daniel, what does the book tell us about what's happened and what had happened in Syria? What, what, what how, how does your book add to the literature about the Syrian tragedy?
1: Uh, Andrew, my book is not intended as a history book on the Syrian war. Others have done it. Others will continue to do it. Uh, My book is taking uh, a reader through just 20 days in which I was trying to find a missing person and in which I experienced not just the brutality of that war, but also the sort of visceral cruelty of the war economy, uh, which is what's keeping this, what's fueling this war and keeping it alive. And for those, despite this sham election yesterday in Syria, believe that the war is over uh the the mere fact that no one can actually travel into syria and into most parts of the country we should tell someone that the war is not over this country is completely devastated and continues to be devastated my book grabs the reader by the chin and takes him through 20 days of understanding exactly what it means for the syrians on the ground
0: is it a psychological thriller is it a tragedy is it a mystery or is it a mix of all those things
1: it's a mix of all those things i don't want to give away any spoilers but in the course of looking for this westerner who had gone missing in syria i have to interact with uh, large drug dealers and also interact with uh, young girls at the time who were taken from villages in syria and sex trafficked into the gulf so i i experienced and witnessed really the ugliest aspects of this war and also witnessed these stratospheric profits that some make uh and that keep on this war uh, keep on going in this war um Daniel Kahneman, the founder
0: or one of the founders of behavioral economics, I'm not sure if he's a, a friend of yours, but anyway, he, he was very generous in describing uh, your book, um, uh, the book uh, "Proof of Life, as a brilliant observations on the anthropology of power. Uh, what do you think uh, Kahneman meant by the anthropology of power, Daniel?
1: uh there, there are certain ways that uh at, at the various pyramids people behave i'm not a behavioral psychologist, and obviously not at the level of of danny kahneman uh is so he a friend I, of
0: yours by the uh, way kahneman? yes
1: we're friendly actually that comment he made uh for my last book nothing but the circus uh he, he may give another generous blurb for this book but um they, they there's a common denominator between the two books which is uh various angles of power. In the case of Syria also, watching the mediocrity of some of the political leaders, I use that term very loosely, uh, and watching the brilliance of those who in that environment around those in power can enrich themselves in in absurd proportions. So you, you watch Assad is as a, as a perfect example of someone who never would have been destined for power. He only came to power because his uh, older brother, who was, uh, who was uh, supposed to succeed, Hafez al-Assad, the father, when he died, had died before that in a car accident. Yeah, so and Assad this-
0: was trained as a dentist, of all things, in London, and, wasn't he? Imagine ophthal- a
1: dentist as a butcher, too. An, an ophthalmologist, actually, yeah. And, and these. Uh, um, it, it's really quite, uh, it, it's, you know, we overuse these terms, quoting Hannah Arendt, the banality of evil, when she talked about the Eichmann trial uh, in Jerusalem. I'm careful with overusing these terms because it it doesn't feel like it is a banality when you interact with these people, but you do feel just this absolute cruelty and in many cases, brilliance being replaced by this this willingness to resort to this senseless violence. So, uh, you know, there are these elements that talk about that in the book, but I don't talk about it academically. I'm just observing it as I'm going through these 20 days.
0: Uh, One of the questions that came up in my reading of the book and my reading of you is who exactly Daniel Levin is. Um, Tell me a little bit about yourself. How would you define yourself?
1: I wouldn't define myself, first of all. Well, you uh, must have
0: everyone defines themselves.
1: <laughs> <then>. <laughs> no, others have done that much more cruelly than I ever could. I was born in Israel in the early 60s. My father was an Israeli diplomat, founding generation of Israel, actually. Uh, and uh, we ended up moving to Kenya and East Africa in the 60s. Uh, then back to Israel. He left politics, a kind of disillusioned, actually, after the Six-Day War and the Labour Party's unwillingness to adjust to the new realities of occupying power and unwillingness to negotiate something at that moment out of a position of strength, moved to Switzerland in 1970, where my mother was from, and I grew up there and, uh, and then kept on moving around and for the last few decades in the US. But my, my professional background is that I'm trained as a lawyer. Uh, my initial interest was actually uh, researching the conflicts between secular and religious law, and that probably prepared me pretty well for the work in the Middle East. But to so say
0: that again, your your professional interest was in distinguishing secular and religious
1: law. Uh, yeah, the, my initial academic career was really focused on clashes between secular and religious law. What a secular society needs to do to harmoniously interact with religious law and where it contradicts its values, uh, and that was that was in the late eighties, early nineties. My academic work, my uh, teaching on that. Uh, when I came to the US, I moved into different areas and got involved in the nineties in political and economic development, always from the legal side initially. Uh, And that led us to bottom up different forms of development, different alternative structures to the World Bank IMF approaches. That in turn, I'm just giving it to you in a nutshell, that in turn led to an approach by a European foundation run by a European head of state, who wanted to know whether I'd be willing to take that approach to development and start a non-for-profit foundation with him uh, for the purpose of working in shattered states, failed, shattered war zones, uh, civil war societies, and help rebuild them with a slightly different approach than has been done since the end of the Second World War through the Bretton Woods Institution. So that's, that's in a nutshell how I also found myself in Syria and in other countries that have gone through the Arab Spring in 2011, 2012, 2013.
0: And is that institute the Liechtenstein Foundation for S- State Governance? Is that your main gig at the moment? Um, it is.
1: Daniel? It is my main gig. Yes. When, uh, yeah, that is my main gig. When I'm not writing books, I should say, I suppose. But uh, that that is the basis for the work. That is work that where we take young people out of conflict zones and prepare them for future leadership with uh, the the hope that they will actually stay on that track and stay clean and and uh, devote their lives to those functions and that was the basis for our work when you in say Syria. S-
0: stay clean what does that mean
1: well if you say let's say you're lucky enough to have 100 candidates uh you're going to emerge with maybe 20 to 25 uh candidates who have the ability and also the integrity to invest this kind of time and resources into uh, in order to prepare them for future leadership, whether that's in politics, in finance, in society, in, in religious institutions, as it's a massive investment in, in that kind of human capital. Uh, and the biggest challenge, of course, among the most capable of them is that they will be faced with a lot of temptation. They will be poached from other institutions and they, through their, uh, their positioning in these neuralgic spots of society, will also have Opportunities thrown at them that they would otherwise not have, and so to withstand those temptations for salaries that will not come close to what they might otherwise be offered is not not so easy. Um,
0: so I'm still not clear. You, you you're saying that you you recruit talent for um, corporate work or for professional work, and you 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 save people from conflict zones. Is this what the Liechtenstein? Uh, foundation does
1: you're not recruiting talent for corporate work at all the, the idea is entirely to go into conflict zones okay and to identify next generation leaders primarily political and social leaders there's no transactional commercial aspect to that what i was saying earlier is the big challenge you're facing is that the most capable of these candidates don't get poached by corporations and institutions who are also seeking to find talent
0: what, what at the Liechtenstein Foundation are you most proud of in terms, not necessarily you personally, but the foundation in terms of doing this in a conflict zone? Might it be Bosnia or Syria or, or somewhere else?
1: No, the Syrian project failed dismally after the war tipped in Assad's favor with the Russian intervention. Uh, we're currently working with a group of Libyans led by a Libyan called Riyad Grada. We created a Essentially a think tank where this group can be trained, working with them on new constitutional models for post-conflict. And we're doing it separate and apart from the process taking place in Libya right now because there's no guarantee that one's going to succeed. If it does succeed, then this is a pool of talents that can be integrated. If it does not succeed, then it's a pool of talent that can be used as an alternative for future leadership. And that's a project I'm very proud of.
0: Okay, Dan, when you're, well, you're clearly someone who knows their way around the world, the world of conflict, of power, of violence, and this is what brought you to Proof of Life, this hunt for a, a missing person in the Middle East. Um, very, very briefly, again, t- tell me the, 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 the narrative of the story. What exactly happened? And I, I assume it's all it. true. You, you changed the names in the book, but, but there's no fiction here. This is a nonfiction book.
1: This is a nonfiction book. I only changed the names of some victims. I didn't change the names of uh, key helpers, key friends like Khalid al who I mentioned in there, and I didn't change the names of any perpetrator. From those within within the Syrian regime to uh, some of the people controlling the drug market in Syria and abroad, those those individuals are all named and shamed. So uh, it's in, it's entirely true. Uh, I recorded conversations. It's it is all documented. Uh, It is in no way a work of fiction. Uh, What had happened was I was approached in 2014, in late 2014. It was a particularly tough year. It was the year where uh, journalists had been brutally executed, beheaded even. uh, And it was the Islamist resurgence in 2014. At the end of that year, I was approached by an acquaintance uh, who uh, asked me whether I could help find a missing person, a missing Westerner, uh, in who had gone missing in Syria, who had marched into Syria, essentially, hadn't been sent by a newspaper or an aid, uh, aid organization, and had completely gone dark, uh, whether I could do anything to help. And I was very disinclined to help at first because I had just had a very disappointing experience where I was unable to provide proof of life to someone else who had asked me to help. Uh, and so I was, I was disinclined to help. I then asked my friend Khalid al-Mahri if he could uh, if he thought that it would be possible to find information and that he he then said he could. And it led me essentially to this 20 day hunt, trying to get closer to the people who could actually tell me what had happened to this person and who had held him at some point.
0: What, what did you most learn both from the experience and from writing the book?
1: Uh, you know, I, I'd spent a lot of time in Syria and had been involved in several other kidnappings and hostage situations. So the, the the market for hostages and the way they're treated as commodities, no different than drugs or weapons or heating oil, uh, didn't really surprise me. But I had never quite experienced the, the sort of visceral br- brutality of this war economy the same way. I, for example, in order to find the people who had held this missing person at some point, I stumbled into... The sex trade, into the trade with young girls who are taken from villages, sold primarily into the Gulf, into Dubai, into Saudi Arabia. Uh, And uh, one of these young girls actually was instrumental in getting me the answers I needed to get. Uh, And I'd never quite seen how this war economy was so powerful that you really lose hope about this conflict ending until that war economy ends and when i mean war economy i'm not just talking about the trade in drugs like captagon or people i'm also talking about the economy involved in legitimizing those profits and in laundering those profits which involve also global financial institutions many blue chip western financial institutions that take huge cash amounts and put them in the swift system and make them untraceable and this is before the cryptocurrencies even took off which which adds a completely new dimension to that so i i I never quite experienced so viscerally perhaps theoretically but not so viscerally how there's absolutely no chance of ending this slaughter and this destruction of a country uh without disrupting that angle of the war economy Uh, and that for me was a, a new experience in that to that sort of direct dimension
0: uh, one of the uh, people who blurbed your book is Ayane Hersi Ali. Um, she was on the show actually a couple of weeks ago. Um, and she, as you know, I'm sure has written a, a very controversial book about Muslim men and sexuality in the West. She argues that a massive influx of uh, men from Syria and from the Middle East has resulted in um, endangering Western women. And in all sorts of uh, sexual problems, shall we say. It's the, the book has caused a great deal of controversy. A lot of people have accused her of being anti-Islam. Is there anything, in your view, anything peculiarly Middle Eastern about this sex trade, or is it a universal phenomenon?
1: The sex trade is definitely not new. We've experienced it in Southeast Asia, in the 70s and 80s, Germany, uh, not only suffered from an epidemic of the sex trade, but also ha- played a big role in the perpetration of the of the sex trade. So uh, I cannot speak as eloquently, obviously, as Ian can to that. She has the scars literally t- literally and figuratively to, s- to talk on this point. And of course, she's getting attacked from all kinds of quarters. Uh, I have just tremendous, phenomenal respect for her. Uh, and for what she brings to light, it is clear that she's going to wade into complicated waters here. I think that uh, I'm very careful to say that there's something unique about a particular region. I also believe that the Middle East fundamentally changed in 1979. Uh, and not only did it change politically with the revolution in Iran, but and with the attack on the mosque in, uh, in Mecca in Saudi Arabia, it also radicalized societies, radicalized religion, and used it as a weapon. And so, I think that the the relationship between men and women in the Arab world and in the Muslim world changed. Pakistan changed completely. Uh, and and for anyone who wants to learn more about it, I can recommend just a fantastic book called Black Wave by uh, Kim Khattas on that. Yeah, uh, I was
0: just about Daniel. Great minds think alike. I was just about to cite Kim's book. She was on the show. And in her book, she talks about this deadly triangle of the United States, Iran, and Saudi Arabia. And she says in her book that when people talk about the crisis, the tragedy of life throughout the Middle East, they ask, what happened to us? And she places us, i.e., I guess the Arab street, in this tragic triangle between the United States, Iran, and Saudi Arabia, Do you have a similar reading of great power politics as as Khatas does in in what has happened in the Middle East in 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 the post-79 world since the Iranian revolution?
1: I definitely do. And I'm old enough to remember having grown up in that world prior to 1979. Uh, I think her forensic analysis of how 1979 changed everything is absolutely spot on. Uh, it's, It's a fantastic book. And, and I think she's absolutely right about that. My focus today, uh, I think the superpower play in the Middle East today is very, very different from the 70s, even the 60s and 50s with the Suez Crisis and Nasser. She talks about it eloquently too. I think uh, to to draw sweeping analogies over decades can get a little bit tricky. Saudi Arabia today is a different country than it was in 1979 and post-1979. For, for better or for worse, that's a longer conversation if we're looking at the refugees and how the refugees have unsettled European societies in particular, uh, and, and Ian talks about that, obviously also based on her own experience in in the Netherlands um, and writes about it in her book, Infidel and in other books. um, I think that Europe and the West have really completely misplayed the, the Middle East also, as it's going to impact their societies. A lot of what you see, the right wing, uh surge in europe throughout many european countries hungary poland and so on we'll see it in the upcoming french election too with marine le pen uh, uh i think has a lot to do with a refugee crisis in germany it's very clear with the crisis to merkel uh where the players are not really understood it's not just about the collapse of syria or iraq or afghanistan and those refugees it's also about misplaying turkey and erdogan's role and turkey playing and erdogan playing a very cruel game with refugees in terms of his own positioning between europe and russia and it's not unique only to the middle east uh, king, king mohammed vi in the the morocco, morocco, morocco plays the same game with refugees uh, from morocco towards spain every time spain does something that's not to his liking whether it's questioning him on his jet ski practices in front of gibraltar or making some statement about Western Sahara and the Polisario that he doesn't like. And then immediately you have the spigot gets opened and refugees get unleashed. So, and of course they change European society. The French experienced that with Algeria and Tunisia and the the immigration from there. Uh, And so uh, there's so little thinking and understanding of how that happens. And also the understanding that you really cannot solve the problem in Europe once the refugees are there. And they're really completely redefined society Ayan writes about that, and anyone who wants to challenge her or just label her in a certain way should walk a day in her shoes before they do that.
0: Yeah, it's interesting that you bring up Turkey. We also had, uh, and I'm sure you know his work, the Turkish-American scholar Mustafa Akyol on the show. Um, his new book, Reopening Muslim Minds, A Return to Reason, Freedom, and Tolerance, is an attempt to go back to what he calls the, I guess, the is Islamic... Um, enlightenment, uh, uh, Ali is slightly different. She argues that Islam needs a reformation now. She has, I think, a less charitable reading on I- Islamic history. What's your reading um, in terms of the existence or a need for a reformation uh, and indeed an enlightenment in the Islamic world?
1: So I'll take a step back to that. It goes away from this book, Proof of Life, and actually goes back to my academic work, including... Uh, the, my work when in my doctorate, when I when my my PhD thesis was in fact about the conflict between men and women, the treatment of women under religious law. I was focused primarily on Jewish law, but also with a comparative perspective on both Sharia law, meaning Islam, and also um, Catholic law, Christian law, canon law, and uh, what I really uh, discovered in the course of my research in all three religions was that what we consider legal statutes and and requirements, for example, in, in relationships between men and women, whether that goes to marriage or divorce or inheritance or adoption, uh, are in many cases rules that were written by men post-primary source, meaning post-Ten Commandments, post-prophecy uh, by the Prophet Muhammad, and so on and so on. Uh, um, and, and rules that could easily be changed and adapted, because my, my point, point there is, and is, and, 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 and I and agree and with Ayan that it's in need of a reformation, but my point is that there is enough room to carry out a reformation within the religious structure itself. In other words, you don't have to just toss it and replace it with secular law. You can find different ways of treating it. Let me give an example. Uh, in Jewish law, the origin of Jewish law uh, as, as it goes to a, a divorce is a unilateral letter that a man grants the his wife for a divorce, and then there is a, a unilaterally a possibility of polygamy for a man if the woman ex- if refuses to accept the divorce letter. Now, there's absolutely no primary source on that. The only source that is being quoted over hundreds of years is the way Abraham sent off his maid Hagar into the desert with the son Ishmael. Now, that's hardly a legal source, And you see this throughout religious law. There are tons of examples in Islam for the same thing. So when Ayan calls for reformation, and I'm not an Islamic scholar, uh, there is plenty of room for interpretation in a way that would actually come closer to what we would consider the values of modern enlightened society, also within religious law.
0: Uh, You mentioned your admiration for Kim Kim Khattas' book.
1: Uh,
0: I'm wondering whether you have a... A, a similar, uh, I wouldn't say philosophy, but similar view of the world to Khatesh. In, in our conversation, we talked a little bit about uh, Kierkegaard's remark. She loves this quote from Kierkegaard. Um, it is perfectly true that life must be understood backward, but they forget the other proposition that it must be lived forwards. Uh, she, of course, quotes the Danish philosopher Kierkegaard in terms of the need for the Middle East to move forward and not always be looking backwards. Is there a future in the Middle East, uh, Daniel? Can, can that uh, Kierkegaardian existential, perhaps, optimism be applied as Khatas as does to the Middle East? Uh,
1: I, I Look, I, for me, as a, a, a motto to live by, uh, I agree with it. Uh, I do believe if we're going to quote for uh, favorite authors, one of my favorite authors is uh, a German writer called Georg Buchner who died much too young at the age of 23 but wrote one of the most wonderful pieces called Danton's Toad, Danton's Death in English. Uh, And in that, he actually uses something that someone else once coined a phrase, which is that revolutions are like Saturn. They devour their own children. Uh, and, And I think what we've learned and especially looking back at Kim's perspective and looking at 1979 is that those revolutions really did devour their own societies and so if we're going to go about any change looking forward the way uh, Kierkegaard talks about it we have to go about it in a way that's a little more intelligent which is that stop seeing these societies as zero-sum games and that's not only the traditional structures sunni shia or jews uh, arabs uh, muslims and those are these are really false dichotomies i really don't believe in that uh, the issue that's happening is that you have now an incentive for the most radical elements of society uh, to keep the conflict alive for their own political survivals. The most easy example you just we all just experienced is in the conflict between Israel and Palestine, between Israel and Hamas in the Gaza Strip right now. The only two beneficiaries of, of that conflict were Bibi Netanyahu, whose term potentially might have been extended a little bit through that because he was done otherwise politically, and Hamas, which, which is losing a lot of the Arab street in Gaza where the leaders of Hamas are all sitting in Doha. Uh, and uh, and this conflict allowed Hamas to present itself again as the protector of the Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem. Uh, those are the only two beneficiaries. So the, all those old dichotomies don't really work. There are completely new alliances that can make sense in the relationships across the board in the Middle East that should be taken advantage of. Uh, and in that respect, I think we can look forward and look at it completely differently. But to just completely repeat the old patterns that have existed for the last 50 years or 40 years, I think is is obviously uh, just a, a self-fulfilling prophecy of what we're going to get.
0: Yeah, Daniel, when I was reading your book, I thought of a movie I saw last week, The Human Factor. Um uh Droy Moran's book about the failed Middle Eastern peace process you brought up, Israel. Uh, I was expecting you to pop up there. You seem a ubiquitous kind of character. What would you have done differently? Very briefly, how did we fuck up uh, that that that
1: peace deal? Well, everyone fucked it up. At every juncture, we fucked it up, to use your, your language. When when uh, we were in Kenya, and my father was uh, Israeli ambassador in Nairobi in 1967 in the Six-Day War. He had a correspondence. He passed away two years ago. I have all his diaries. He had a correspondence with the leadership of the Labour Party. This is pre-Likud in Israel, saying to Golda and to others, uh, this is the time now to negotiate the deal. And then they answered back, well, the Arabs all did this Khatoum revolu- re- resolution. They just want to destroy Israel. I said, but it's not the Palestinians. The Palestinians just got shattered. Let's find an arrangement. They just suffered through their Nakba in 1948. This is the time to do it. He was completely shoved aside. And my father was not some a starry-eyed peacenik he was a war hero in the war of 1948 war of independence he was a member of the palmach the elite military unit pre-military unit uh but he clearly understood where this was heading as did others uh but those are the people no one listened to so uh and it just continued to be a zero-sum game the the, my problem with israel is that the demographics are changing it's very the people always say israel is like the united states what you see in israel is no different than what you saw with trump here but it's very different because what you saw with Trump was, in fact, certain groups trying to fight the demographic changes in this country. In Israel, the demographics are not working in our favor. Uh, we have maybe a few more years when, in my opinion, otherwise this becomes irreversible, just in, in terms of the uh, largest parts of society are becoming the most radical parts of societies, really on all sides of the conflict. I'm just now speaking, though, for uh, the Jewish part of Israel. Uh, and so I really, I think there we're really running out of time uh, and, and the specifics here re, really are, obvi- are fairly obvious. Obviously, if you keep on creating a problem, the first thing to do is stop creating the problem. So, for example, stop building new settlements. That's not that complicated.
0: Daniel, let's end. Let's go back to the book, Proof of Life, 20 Days on the Hunt for a Missing Person in the Middle East. You've got some lovely blurbs, one from Helen Epstein. Uh, uh, she writes proof of life is a true james bond story for our time um the more i talk to you the more i think you should be playing i'm not sure if you're james bond but you look a little bit uh, bond like who who's going to be bond in the movie
1: i don't know i think my hairstyle makes me more of a bond villain actually That's well actually i was
0: about to say that um the headlines of course this week we we <laughs> talked about uh bezos and amazon's acquisition of mgm um and of course, uh, Bezos is the true Bond villain, and 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 you look a little bit like
1: Jeff Bezos. Is, is that another one of your lives, Daniel? Well, I think I think the 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 hairless head is probably where the analogies where the analogies end. Uh, I I really can't think of any other one, Certainly not my wallet. Uh, <laughs> I I think that. Uh, helen was very kind and it was nice for her to say that it's obviously the kind of blurb a publisher loves because it it will cause someone to want to read what they consider a thriller uh I, i'm very i'm very uh careful about that that you know the middle east like most regions is full of charlatans traveling around saying that they uh that they have solutions there sometimes the charlatans are actually son-in-laws of a president and personal advisors to the presidents but people who really uh, don't know much and 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 particularly don't listen much and so um To walk around and say there's a recipe on that, let me give you an example. You asked me earlier in a very specific example of a measure that could create just an incredible amount of goodwill. Because once we get caught up in settlements and nuclear armament in Iran and retaliations and so on, uh, we're in a cycle we're not going to break, not in a conversation and not on the ground. Here's a measure to to throw something interesting at you that I've been involved in. It's not a secret that the Middle East, like other parts of the world, is suffering from an unbelievable so- water sort- shortage. Iran is suffering at Jordan from an unbelievable water shortage. And even in the Gulf, the wealthy Gulf states that uh, that, that spend a lot of money on desalination, obviously the water gets then thrown in, uh, the the salt gets thrown into the, to, uh, to the seas and create massive damage to the ecosystem. So the, the, the water shortage in the Middle East is something that's going to devastate the place to the point where there might be nothing left to fight over now uh israel in particular has some fantastic technology starting originally with reverse osmosis technologies and new technologies with a far smaller carbon footprint on water desalination and water purification now uh, jordan and israel uh, are having having this spat where Netanyahu also hijacked the process for his purposes in being stingy about the amount of uh, desalinized water that he would provide to to Georgia. Now, if you just for a moment imagine making those technologies available and joint ventures throughout the region just on something that is considered an acute threat to the survival also of those regimes and monarchies in the region, that alone would create the kind of goodwill uh, that, that has real spillover effect, just like I think Netanyahu made a terrible almost criminal mistake by not more generously providing vaccines to uh, people in particular in the gaza strip again imagine the kind of goodwill hamas would have a really hard time creating a counter narrative for that so it's not that there aren't opportunities to create conditions where the people really work together in a way that makes it almost irreversible because they have so much to lose by not doing it uh it's that they don't these these things don't get pursued for for political purposes
0: well there you have it um uh, Tom Wright, another person blurbing your book, say that you are a rarity, one of those people who knows how the world really works. I was curious to meet you, and and and, and it seems as if you do. Your book, uh, your new book, Proof of Life, is really about how the world works uh, in uh, in 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 the Syrian uh, catastrophe, um, and. Um, Somebody else, uh, and, and sorry, another of your admirers, Janine De DiGiovanni, um, suggested it, it, it reads, the book reads like a true life Graham Greene novel. And um, when I read that, uh, Daniel, especially given your Swiss connection, it reminded me of Orson Welles in The Third Man. I don't know if you remember that, which of course was written by Graham Mm Greene, that famous moment at the the end of The Third Man when uh, Wells' character Harry Lyme says, in Italy, for 30 years under the Borgias, they had warfare, terror, murder, and bloodshed. But they produced Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci, and the Renaissance. In Switzerland, they had brotherly love. They had 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Unfortunately... Syria doesn't confirm that, does it? Syria had this or has this terrible bloodshed, but they haven't produced a Michelangelo, a Leonardo da Vinci, a Renaissance. So that sort of Machiavellian version of the world simply isn't true. We're better off in Switzerland than we are in in Syria, aren't we, Daniel?
1: We're never given the choice either way. The Syrians aren't given a choice. I'm sure they would love to have a cuckoo clock or some Swiss chocolate for now and as, and settle for boring for for now. Syria was such a thriving society. If you've been to Syria prior to this conflict, despite the the brutality of the Assad regime, it never was it never was visceral within society. It was the one Arab country that I traveled where you never felt that anyone asked you whether you're Jewish or Christian or Sunni or Shia or Alawi. Uh, uh, it, it wasn't sectarian the way Lebanon felt sectarian, uh, it, certainly the way the Gulf does. Um, and, and to see devastated like that, to, to see all of Syrian culture go away, all the the writers, the poets, the musicians, the artifacts, the first thing ISIS did is just destroy these unbelievable sites, these heritage sites, um, is really heartbreaking. I think that the, you know, the Orson Welles line is obviously fantastic, the Grand Green line. It's, it's really a fantastic line. And as a Swiss, I chuckle. Uh, there's a lot of truth to it from the Swiss perspective, but that doesn't mean the reverse is true, which is that the bloodshed and the murder, necessarily leads to Michelangelo, as you've said.
0: Well, Daniel Levin, congratulations on on your new book, Proof of Life, 20 Days on the Hunt for a Missing Person in the Middle East. Maybe it's James Bond, maybe it's Graham Greene, maybe it's Machiavelli. Maybe it's a modern version of the Bible, I'm not entirely sure, but it reads in, in a very engaging, tragic and moving way. I know you're in your home in New York at the moment in these odd almost post-COVID times. We're still stuck at home. In addition to your book, what else should people be reading, uh, Daniel, to make sense of our complicated
1: world? Uh, Two books I just read that I highly recommend. Uh, One is by Michaela Rong, Do Not Disturb, on Rwanda and uh, and how the genocide played out. And of course, on the regime since then and the oppression in Rwanda. It's a fantastic book. I recommend it.
0: Do you know them?
1: I don't know her do i know her or do yeah. i know wanda no i don't know her personally okay. no but this is a second book of hers that i've read and and it's a fantastic book i highly I recommend to, it it yeah, just have came get out her
0: on the show anyone uh anyone listening who knows her please let me know and we'll, we'll have her on the show yeah. Yeah. And,
1: and the other book by uh Gorenberg, an american-born israeli uh, historian called war of shadows is a very very interesting book on the myth that exists in Israel that if uh, Rommel had just marched all the way through Egypt and gotten to Palestine, that the Jewish underground would have been able to stop him. And absurd that was. Gorenberg is an author of fantastic books, also on the settlements and development called The Accidental Empire, an older book of his. I highly recommend. A fantastic historian and an, an outstanding writer. Do you know him? No, I don't know him. Oh, I thought you knew everyone, Daniel. I can, I can, if you'd, I can get to him if you'd like. That's fine.
0: <laughs> no, I, I, I think I would be nervous uh, um, living in your uh, orbit, Daniel. But it, it's, it's an honor and a pleasure. I'm, I was very curious to meet you. You lived up to my expectations. You're clearly a man who knows how the world works. And that means you have an open invitation to come back on the show whenever you like to explain our complicated and often all too tragic world. Thank you so much, Daniel Levin. Keep well. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Andrew. Thank you for having me on.